our Glendale Church family and all who may be joining us as you um, follow this stream, we are continuing our studies in the book of Revelation. And today, we it is my intention to summarize the seven individual letters to the individual churches. So we're not going to dive deeply into any of the content as much as just sort of give a summary or an overview uh, for the individual letters as we've covered individually uh, from chapter or in chapters two and three. Now, one of the reasons I think it's important to uh, pay attention to the content of the individual letters is because some people have different views of those churches. For instance, uh, it has been allegorized by saying that the seven churches represent seven points in church history. And I think that misses the point. It's going to be my assumption as we walk through these seven points, which is just ironic, I didn't do it because it's seven churches, but uh, the seven points of summary are intended to show that the challenges and the issues that were confronted by these seven local churches in the first century at the time that John wrote the book remain our challenges. They, are, they may play themselves out differently in various contexts, but these are not just uh, historical or allegorical moments in the history of the church, phases of the church development, that at this phase you'll see this and another phase you'll see the other. No, these are ongoing issues and concerns for the local church until the return of Christ. So let's look at seven points of summary. The first one is this, the church will slash must strive to maintain both doctrinal and moral faithfulness until the Lord returns. Now let me go back over that a little slower and just kind of um, open that up a little bit. The church will, in other words, there is an assumption that there is going to be a striving in these areas and they must strive to maintain both doctrinal and moral faithfulness until the Lord returns. Now what this implies is, well, in fact, let me back up a little bit. It has been the teaching of historic Protestantism that on this side of heaven, we will not experience a pure church. The church is continuously a mixed bag for two reasons. Number one, on this side of heaven, we understand that the church will consist of both sheep and goats. There is the mixture of wheat and tare. Secondly, the church individually, in terms of its individual members, are not pure. We know that we are individually and collectively credited with the righteousness of Christ. So we are growing into uh, the righteousness that we are covered by. Therefore, the church is always mixed. It's mixed in terms of its growth. It's mixed in terms of there may be individuals who are not genuine believers. We don't know this until the end. That's why we emphasize 
confessing what we believe because we are Christians by virtue of what we believe. And then we flesh out what we believe. Now, one of the other things um, that was important for our Protestant forefathers is the importance of church discipline. And church discipline was not just for blatant immorality. Church discipline could be exercised because of unorthodox beliefs. So if someone departed, and that's one of the things that John deals with, especially in his uh, letters, in his uh, epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, if there, there can be a departure from the faith. So therefore, um, we confess what we believe because no one that claims to be a Christian has a right to proclaim whatever you want to teach. What makes us Christian is that we believe in common a certain body of truth, and we are accountable for what we profess. So one area where there can be and, and should be church discipline is when people bring ideas or teachings. And in the past, I know we've talked about the distinction between primary and secondary doctrine. And one of the reasons that's so critical is because if it's a matter of a primary doctrine, then we cannot coexist. If it's a secondary issue, then we should be able to live in harmony even with those secondary uh, concerns. Now, if you are a member of a church, for instance, if you are Baptist, you grew up Baptist, you believe in believer's baptism, and I've counseled people in this way, and you are looking for another church, and the only Baptist church that's close to you is one that does not hold to the doctrines of grace. But there is a Presbyterian church close by or an Episcopal church close by. I would advise someone to, uh, if, you, if, if, that's, if, those, if those are your choices, then go with the Presbyterian church. Go with the Episcopal church if those local congregations remain faithful to their body of truth. If they remain faithful, if the gospel is preached, and, and I do believe that our brothers in the Presbyterian and Episcopal churches have a grasp of the gospel. That's what's contained in their standards, in their confessions. So you are better off in a church where you do not agree with the mode or the subjects of baptism, but you do believe in the gospel. Go to that Presbyterian church and shut up about your differences on, on baptism because you can start an unnecessary um, fracas or uh, be unnecessarily contentious over secondary issues and that could be a cause for discipline. But primarily, what we're talking about when it comes to discipline in the local church, and I really wish a lot of our uh, local congregations and denominations would take this seriously, that when there is a departure from the primary doctrines of the faith, then we as a body have a responsibility to hold you accountable for what you profess. And if you hold to that which is different from, from what we profess and what we hold together as a body, and you profess that, then I think that is cause for church discipline. We also discipline in the area of morality. Everyone sins, we know that. But discipline for 
unfaithfulness um, to the, the truth and unfaithfulness when it comes to our practice is when that sin has become public and it has been confronted. Now, I personally believe that church discipline begins with the first time that that sin is confronted. When it's confronted, now we assume that in a healthy church and the gospel, law and gospel are being consistently and properly preached, we are confronted with our sins on a weekly basis. And I also would assume that there is ongoing repentance. That's part of the Christian life. But when particular actions or public sins, physical sins, whatever they may be, when they become public and you are confronted with it, even if it's by another brother or another sister outside of the church context, the very first time that is confronted outside of the ordinary preaching of the law, consider that Christ working through the individual parts of his body confronting that sin. That's the beginning of church discipline. And then when that sin is, is, is confronted, and there is no repentance, and it moves as, as Jesus does in Matthew 18, it moves to the next level where someone else comes to you, where two or three, now you've really been confronted on this particular issue. Again, that's the continuation of church discipline. Oftentimes we look at church discipline as the final step, which is the removal of the fellowship of the church. But church discipline begins with the confrontation of sin. I should also point out that the end of church discipline, because I think if we, if we say that discipline is the removal of the fellowship, then it makes sense when people say that the end of church discipline or the aim of church discipline is restoration. But I argue that if we understand that church discipline begins with confrontation, then the goal of church discipline is repentance. So whether it's in the first confrontation or whether it's in the final confrontation that may end up leading to removing a person from the fellowship, what we're aiming for, if there is restoration, the reason there's restoration is because uh, the church has determined that there has been suitable repentance. The point being is that the church until the return of Christ will struggle and strive in these two areas that we will not be lax when it comes to maintaining the truth of the gospel and we should not be lax when it comes to maintaining moral conduct according to the word of God. Now in particular this was the challenge for the church of Pergamos in Revelation chapter 2 beginning in verse um, beginning in verse 12 it says unto the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith giving every indication that the church at Pergamum was very solid in maintaining the integrity of the gospel but then it says this, it says, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful witness, who was killed among where Satan dwells. But, he says, I have a few things against you. You have some there um, uh, who hold the teaching of Balaam, 
who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans, and therefore he caused them to repent. So in this instance, somewhere, even as they held faithful, uh, they were faithful in holding to the gospel, they were laxed when it comes when it came to certain other practices in the church. He's not necessarily saying that uh, sexual immorality was present at Pergamum as he does elsewhere, but he indicates that the teaching that they have allowed could lead to practices that are inconsistent with their faith. So one of the things that the church will and must contend with, in fact, let me back up, the church will and must strive to maintain both doctrinal and moral faithfulness. One of the defining features of the church in uh, after the Reformation, uh, well, one of the ways they define, the threefold way they define the church is where the word of God was rightly proclaimed, where the sacraments were rightly administered, and where church discipline is administered. So where there is a standard, we simply do not have the right to act however we want or believe whatever we want. So this will always be the struggle because we're dealing with a mixed church. And so sin will always be uh, confronted or should be confronted, whether it's through the ordinary preaching of the word or through faithful, vital Christian fellowship. And this is always going to be our struggle. We should always be striving to be better in our practice, to be clear in our doctrine. So the church, and this is what we see as we journey through those seven letters, that the church will and must strive to maintain not one or the other, but both um, purity as much as we can in terms of the faith that we profess and our practice, how we live in this world and within the context of the Christian uh, fellowship. But a second uh, summary is this. It is possible for church to be on solid ground in its doctrine and deficient in its display of love. This, was, this is what we see with the church at Ephesus. Jesus rebukes them because they have departed from their first love. And as we indicated when we went through um, that, that particular letter, that people have tried to figure out what it was, what was their first love. And I would argue that if we look at the pattern of the church in the book of Acts, the first one of the the first love is the is the horizontal love that they show within the fellowship. It's love of the word that leads them to practice love towards one another. So it seems that perhaps at the church uh, with the church at Ephesus, they were dotting all of the I's and crossing all of the T's, but they were not practicing love. Now, we're preaching through or have been preaching through the book of James. And I would argue that's part of what James is addressing there. They are claiming to have right doctrine, but their absence of horizontal love puts their doctrine in question. 
So we see with the church like the church at Ephesus, and let, let me again return to that letter. It's the, the first of the seven letters that Jesus is very, uh, is very serious about this. Uh, he says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested them, and you have, who have called themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. So, you know, hooray for them. They have been able to sniff out false doctrine. They have confronted those who claimed to be apostles, but they were false. He says, I know you're, you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So they've done all the right things to maintain sound doctrine. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Now, brothers and sisters, I know that we live in a doctrinal wasteland. And with so much media at our disposal, and by media, I mean those means by which different messages can be conveyed, even when it comes to Christianity. Uh, there are so many podcasts. There's so many, so many things that, that are feeding us. When we go to our computers, there are blogs, there are, you know, there are websites. And on the surface, things may sound good. But as someone once described, I think it was Oz Guinness that described the evangelical church as being a mile wide and an inch deep. So a lot of things that have uh, the name of church or the name of Christ on it, it may not be sound. So when you find a church where doctrine is important, amen for that. But let me also say this, sound doctrine manifests itself in love, genuine love for one another. We can't be comfortable at knowing truth and being disconnected from our brothers and sisters. And when I say disconnected, I mean sometimes just, just little things that demonstrate genuine affection for those that we are in fellowship with. So it's not always having formal uh, and, and scheduled fellowships. I mean the, the incidental contact, just those unscheduled gatherings with one another, demonstrating genuine love. It's, as we said, with the first point of overview, the Christian church must always strive for purity, both in the faith that we proclaim and morality our our practice but the christian so we shouldn't have to make a decision between immorality and sound doctrine but likewise we must not have to, we shouldn't have to make a decision between showing love and being sound in what we profess jesus issues a very serious warning to the church at ephesus because with all of their soundness, they were not very loving. I pray that we would not be characterized that way. That's one of the, hopefully, and I, I say hopefully, but um, it's easy to buy into caricatures. And I remember when I first came into the arena of Reformed theology, you would hear phrases like the frozen, chosen, 
or that um, those people who are reformed have a tendency to be snooty and they think they're better than others. I found that to be more of an easy target rather than really get, getting to know people who hold to these truths on the one hand. So I, I, I know that people, and especially when I came into Reformed Theology, I mean, it was a brand new world for me. But even as I was hearing all of these charges, to be quite honest, I experienced deeper levels of love from the people that held to these doctrines than I did with people that I often grew up with. And I'm not saying that people didn't show love in the church, um, in the local church and in the church world that I grew up in. I'm just saying that we hear these labels where it's not true, that we buy into these tropes and say, ah, they, they, because they're not, their worship service isn't as lively as ours, they're cold, they're distant or whatever. But on the other hand, while it may be true that, that those, are, uh, those are caricatures of those who are committed to sound doctrine, I have also experienced dismissive attitudes by those who are committed to truth. Less patience with those who have a certainty of what they believe, and they haven't always been patient with others who are journeying into that camp. And more importantly, what defines us and what brings us together as a body does not mean that we don't have genuine affection for one another. So it's not enough to just know truth. It's enough to demonstrate that truth. And again, like I said, I, I think that's the heart of what James is addressing in his epistle. Those who claim to have a knowledge of truth and a love for truth but they're not demonstrating it in the context of their interactions with one another. So again, on the one hand, as we saw in point one, the church must strive and will strive to maintain clarity and purity in both faith and practice. But the church also must make sure that our love for truth does not keep us from de demonstrating love for one another. Here's a third uh, observation or summary. Jesus' threat to the church at Ephesus that unless they repent, he will remove their lampstand is indicative of the fact that while the universal church will never cease, it is very much possible for individual congregations and even denominations to cease. In fact, I would argue that not just to cease or, or cease, but apostatize. Because when he says, I will remove your lampstand, he doesn't indicate that they will necessarily disband. So, and I, and I say this because oftentimes we'll look at what Jesus says to Peter when Peter confesses that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and then in Matthew 16, and, and then uh, Jesus comes back and says, flesh and blood did not uh, reveal that to you, but my Father is, who is in heaven. And then he says, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And it's easy to take that verse and assume that it means that this local gathering 
this denomination will always be, will, will always continue to exist, and Jesus will always claim us as his church. Well, that's not what he says. What he says is that he will remove his candlestick. So whether or not, whether or not the church at Ephesus continues to gather, unless they repent and reestablish horizontal love within the context of the fellowship, Jesus is saying that as far as he is concerned, they will not be a church. And you think about that. They could have a lot of good, helpful information and still not be a church. So I think it's, it's true and possible that local congregations can apostatize, turn away from the truth, and they can cease to be a church. Not the universal church. It will continue. It will prevail. But it's possible that individual congregations and sometimes even entire, uh, entire denominations can apostatize. We talk about the Roman Catholic Church, and I do believe if we look at history, at church history, there was a time when the Roman Catholic Church was orthodox, and they departed. So they are a church in error, and they have apostatized, turned away from faithfulness to the gospel. Um, so Jesus is warning this local congregation that it is possible for him to remove his lampstand. And I, of course, lampstand refers to the indwelling uh, presence of the Spirit and the influence and illumination of the Spirit. Uh, this is part of, I believe, what Paul is addressing in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 when he talks about a great falling away. And there will be those, he says, that will come with lying signs and wonders that God will allow. And the reason he will allow it is because they have no love for the truth. Here's a fourth summary, point of summary. They're running throughout these seven letters, there seems to be a twofold warning against worldliness. A twofold warning against worldliness. And I, I say this as the collective body of, of letters to the churches. Now, what I mean by worldliness, um, John uses a phrase in 1 John the world, the flesh, and the devil. We know what the devil is, the manifestation. He is the manifestation of evil. He is um, a fallen angel who is rebellious and uh, rebellious against and resistant to the word of God, who seeks, to, seeks his own glory than the glory of God. Then the flesh, the flesh refers to our fallen nature and our fallen instincts, individually. So we are naturally inclined away from the things of God. And what God does in regeneration is he gives us a heart to know him and to embrace the gospel and therefore to walk in light of that gospel. So worldliness is, if, if the flesh is our fallen inclinations, then worldliness is the collective fallen human mindset 
it is not, it, in other words, it is what we are individually amplified by institutions and organizations or thought patterns, collective thought patterns. It could be in academia, it could be in various things collectively where things seem to be right, but they are following the course of our fallen nature rather than who we are in Christ. And also, I should point this out before we look at the twofold warning against worldliness. I used this illustration last week in discussing it with someone else. I think we often have a misunderstanding of regeneration. And in regeneration, Paul says we become a new creation. We become a new creature and all things are made new. And so the assumption is that all of my sinful desires are gone. All I, you know, I'm just, I'm just a new creation. But it's actually more like um, a plant, uh, an organ transplant. For instance, if you have, a, if anyone who has, um, and I discovered this with, through a friend, anyone who knows someone or who has had the experience of a kidney transplant, what they do is they don't take your old kidney out they actually put another kidney in. And the Christian life is more like that person who had that kidney transplant. They don't take the, the old kidney out, they leave it in. And they put a new kidney in beside it. And what we struggle with is the interactions of that old kidney, which is actually rejecting the new. And that's the struggle that we have in the flesh until, as Paul says, we take off our mortality and put on immortality. So our state of, in our state of glorification, the old kidney will be done away. In the meantime, we struggle with that old kidney being in us, even as we have received a new one. And I say that because individually, we are still in our, with, because of the old kidney, we, we still fight against the things of God. And sometimes those, those inclinations away from the things of God are reinforced by the culture. They're reinforced by different schools of thought. So worldliness is the inclination of the fallen mindset in a collective way. So there are, there's a twofold warning against worldliness that's seen throughout these letters. First off, uh, the church of Sardis is a good example of this, and that is living off of one's reputation. Sardis had a reputation for being alive, but Jesus says they are dead. Now the things, when we went over that letter, we pointed out that he's not necessarily saying that the things that gave them their reputation was bad, but it seems as if they were more concerned about those programs, those external things that gave them a reputation of being alive to the point that they were neglecting for the things that really give us corporate life. So here's one phase of worldliness that the church will always have to struggle against. Being famous, being well-known, 
being popular at the expense of the things that define us. The Apostle Paul says that the church is the ground and the pillar of the truth. So even if the church, if the community knows us for maybe some, you know, some great task that we've done, some community involvement, or if they know us for having fairs and picnics or whatever, but they don't know us from the gospel that is sounding forth from us, we may have a reputation. We may have all kinds of city hall citations. We may get invited to all of these different things so that we have a reputation for being alive, but we really are dead. That the things that are most important that Christ has died for, that we have been illuminated for, have become secondary. So I think that's a form of worldliness where we are seeking to make a name for ourselves. And, and I think that's a huge problem in a generation where we have so many churches. And so in, in other words, we, what we see in the 21st century is almost unheard of in the first century. And that is you go from block to block and there may be three or four churches, not of three or four different denominations, but sometimes of the same denomination. Well, any community only has so many people. And if you're striving to make a name for yourself or to fill up your building, in you're, you're putting yourself in competition with the other church, the same denomination in, in many instances, and sometimes holding to the same basic truths. So we find ourselves, even though we don't use these, this, this uh, terminology, we're really competing. And so sometimes in that competition, we are willing to do anything cutting edge so that we can have the advantage over our competition. And so everybody wants to be associated with this church because we have this, we have that. And sometimes the reputation that we gain, even if it's a positive reputation, even if it's doing for doing good altruistic things, it may be an indication that our commitment is more to the world than it is to the word. And I think that's a form of worldliness that the church um, always has to, to be mindful of. But a second form of worldliness, which is manifest in the church of Laodicea, which we looked at the last two weeks, is we can be blinded by the standards of the world. What is it that makes, and I, I hate how this has come into our discussion when we're evaluating churches, and especially among ministers, uh, when preachers or pastors get together, it's almost like we want to measure, you know, our success. So how big is your church and that sort of thing. And so we can be blinded by the standards of the world rather than our commitment to the things of God so that, because that was the issue with the church of Laodicea. They thought because their building was nice and they thought because their finances were sound that they, had, that they were okay. So they measured their health by the wrong things. And 
as we pointed out at the time, Jesus doesn't say that they've done anything wrong, but he does indicate that their problem is that they had lost their zeal. They had lost their zeal more than likely for those things that money can't buy. And so they were worldly in the sense that they were successful. And I've argued for years, and I heard this years ago from a preacher, and it never left my mind, that God never caused us to be successful. He's called us to be faithful. And so sometimes we can look at external things and, and listen, when attendance is down or you've lost members, when finances are down, those are very real issues and very real concerns. And however we address those issues, whatever, whatever the cause of those issues are, we can't flip it and say that now that everyone is coming, now that our, our budget is fully met, that we are therefore good, that we are healthy, because we may be healthy and like the church at Ephesus, but we're not loving. We may be healthy like the church at Pergamos, but we've been lax at things that we've allowed in the back door. So the twofold worldliness that I think the church has to always be guard, on guard against manifesting these seven letters and, and really permeating throughout is on the one hand, not trying to make a name for ourselves. And I know this is a, 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 it's a modern thing that we're branding and we wanna brand, we wanna see our brand all over the city. And sometimes there's more commitment to marketing our brand than just clearly and properly declaring Christ. I know that sounds trite, but it's true. And so are we more committed to our own history and what the Lord has done for us in these many years? We started with a handful and look at what we've done. And we overlook the fact that the most significant thing that can come from any church, and it begins with this individual realization that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he has translated us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son. And that's what's most important about us. That's the message that we have been sent to tell other children of darkness that you don't have to die in the darkness that you live in. And God forbid that we get more stuck on our brand and our label than we do about the gospel. And God forbid that we assume that because all of our bills are paid and because we are able to do this, that, or the other, that we're healthy and that we lose a zeal for the things that we have been entrusted with, proclaiming the gospel, dealing with, with those around us and showing them the mercy and the love of God in our interactions beginning in our individual fellowship in the church. Worldliness 
is a problem that we will have to contend with as long as we're in the world. And that's because God hasn't taken the old kidney out. And as Jesus promises, or as he prays in his high priestly prayer in John's gospel, he didn't pray that God would take us out of the world. He says, I pray for them, not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would keep them from the evil one. Here's a fifth um, summary. A faithful church may not always flourish either numerically or financially. And that's what we see with the church of Smyrna. It's the one letter that Christ only has good things to say and to this church that's suffering because sometimes we think joy will come in the morning. This is just a season. Joy will come in the morning. And in an eschatological sense, if the morning is when Christ returns, that's true. But what Jesus tells this suffering church who's fiscally poor, and who has already experienced persecution, here's his word to them. In a few days, a few, some, of, some more of you are going to be in prison. Brothers and sisters, I think one of the most significant challenges, and it will remain a significant challenge for the church until the Lord's return, is defining and determining what makes for a healthy church. My good friend Mark Dever and his ministry, Nine Marks Ministry, has written a book on Nine Marks of a Healthy Church and a series of booklets that go along with it, individual books that break down what makes for a healthy church. And I don't think those are necessarily the be-all and end-all, but they are certainly indicators of what makes for a healthy church because a healthy church may indeed be large in number. They may have a tremendous facility, may have two campuses. That's not what makes, that's not what makes them healthy. Or a healthy church may be a handful of Christians in not just the third, in, in, develop, in a developing country. It may be a handful of Christians meeting in a storefront in one of our major cities. What is it that makes for a healthy church? Let us not be driven by being successful, more driven by being successful than we are at being faithful. Because the faithful church may not always have the biggest building, the most people, or the largest budget. But the faithful church is the one that continues and they uh, continues to strive for the cause of the gospel, and they do not allow their external circumstances, be they meager or be they great, to distract them. Because either want or excess can get us distracted. In other words, when we have a lot, we can be distracted by the, by, by the multitude of, of, our, of our crops, and when we are struggling to make it from week to week, we can be distracted. 
But I love what Jesus says to Paul when he prayed for the thorn to be removed from his flesh. And the Lord told him, no, I'm not going to take it because my grace is sufficient for you. And in your weakness, my strength is manifest. So a faithful church may not, may not always flourish by those external signs by which we are used to defining a faithful church. And let me say this, just because the church's numbers may not be what they were in the past, that doesn't mean they've departed from anything that's sound. And likewise, just because a church has an accelerated rate of growth, it doesn't mean that they're sound. So a faithful church may not always have the biggest budget or the biggest building, but they will be consistent in the proclamation of God's grace. Six, no matter how far off a church may be in doctrine and practice, Christ remains faithful through the ministry of the word. Christ remains faithful to this church at Pergamos where the doctrines of the Nicolaitans were present. He remains faithful to the church that, that thought they were alive and they were dead. And his faithfulness to them is seen in him calling them to repentance. So the faithfulness to Christ, to the church, is according to the local circumstances of that church, but it's seen through the medium of the ordinary means that he's established for the church. Christ remains faithful to the church through the word. And it's through this medium of the, the preaching of the word that churches have an opportunity to repent. And I want to rush, I'm, I'm trying not to rush, but I need to. Um, I, I think that's important because to go back to uh, the church at Sardis, it's easy to assume God's favor when things are going well. And it's also easy to assume that when people are turning away or when the money is not coming in, that we must be doing something wrong. And what Christ is saying is that if we are true to the message, regardless of the in and out, regardless of the ebb and flow, trust him and hear him. And it's through, don't depart from the word. It's a, it's a preaching tendency that when the finances go down, we start preaching on tithing. Uh, what opens up the hearts of God's people, the largesse of God's people and their generosity is not more law, do, 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 but it's a reminder of who we are and whose we are and that he owns us and he loves us and through a faithful ministry of the word, regardless, and that's what we see through all of these seven churches. So we've ran the gambit from the most faithful church to a church that Jesus says makes me want to spit you out, but in spite of it all, he's remained faithful because every call to repent assumes that there is a ministry of the word and the gospel 
which caused them to repent. Paul says it is the goodness of God that leads us to, that leads to repentance. He says in Titus that it is the goodness of God, it is the grace of God that teaches us to say no to all unrighteousness. So if the end for the churches that are in error is for them to repent, the only way that they will repent is through a faithful ministry of the word. The only way that a church that is struggling numerically and fi financially can be affirmed and comforted is through the word of Christ reminding them that they belong to him. So wherever you are in, in developing countries and a small church setting, a church plant, or a church in transition. Be faithful to the word and the ministry of the word because it's through the ministry of the word that Christ continues to demonstrate his love for his people. Which brings us to a final point. Throughout these letters, Christ demonstrates his love and his compassion by affirming them with promises and statements to, to remind them that he is with them as with the church of Sardis and that he knows them and that he's in their midst. But Christ also demonstrates his love for them by giving them necessary rebuke. In verse 19 of chapter 3 in speaking to the church of Laodicea, Jesus says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. So you see the connection of all of these, whether it's a matter of worldliness, whether it's a matter of losing our priorities or losing our, our first love. As long as you hear that word of rebuke, you have opportunity to repent. And that's true for us individually and is true for us corporately. Here's what we see in the seven churches. There is no utopia this side of heaven. Oftentimes churches individually and corporately or even denominationally, we are looking for a golden era in the past. And what Christ is telling these churches in the present is that I, am your sufficient, I am your sufficiency and your reward. And your golden days are not behind you. Your golden days lie ahead. Let us hear what Christ says to the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear. As we prepare to pray, uh, again, I want to say thank you to our church family for your diligence and for your faithfulness in supporting or financial support during this period of, of pandemic. We are in preparation to and uh, looking at, at what is what will be necessary to resume and we will communicate that to you in a timely manner. But we do thank you for your continued prayers and your continued faithfulness. We have been able to maintain everything that we need and we thank we're are grateful for our custodial staff who have, have um, worked tremendously. Even though we are not seeing traffic in the buildings, they have worked hard maintaining as much as we can, sanitizing the facilities in the sanctuary, taking care of all of the things that need to continue to be tended to. I'm grateful for our staff, Zena and Sister Grant and 
um, and, and Sister Jill as they work and, and answer the phones and uh, receive your offerings as you bring them. Zena for her regular and faithful communication, keeping you posted on what's going on within the fellowship. Those within the choir, I know Sister Thelma and her group have been reaching out to others. So thank you so much for demonstrating your love to one another and allowing us to serve you in this manner and not growing weary as we do the things of God. Uh, keep posted and we will let you know as we look forward to uh, resuming with our regular uh, uh, services. And we know that things will, will have to change but we do look forward to seeing you face to face. Uh, continue to lift those uh, who are on our prayer list. Uh, everything that has been mentioned in uh, this, the update, the emails that have been sent out, please remember those individuals in those circumstances. Let's ask God's blessings. Our God and our Father, we do thank you for your tender mercies. We thank you for salvation in Christ and for bringing us into him and into fellowship with one another. We thank you for your word and the reminder of the faithfulness of our great shepherd through the ordinary means that he's established for the church. We pray, Father, that we would hear your warnings, we would hear your comforts, that we would be reminded that we are not of this world, but we belong to you. Let us not take lightly our accountability to truth, whether it's corporately or individually continue to conform us to your will by your grace, continue to strengthen our bonds one to another, and to continue to strengthen our stand as the pillar and the ground of truth. Thank you, and we do thank you for your, your, your continued mercies towards us. We lift our, our, all of those who are within our fellowship who are sick and shut in, and we pray for other churches throughout the land whose circumstances are not as ours. We thank you for those whose resources have been great and they've used them for the furtherance of the kingdom. And we thank you for those who are challenged by various things and we pray that you would continue to keep them focused and keep them faithful. Thank you for your mercies in Christ and we ask these things in his name, amen.